Uh, hey, I, I need your help really quick. Again, I just mentioned that we are launching our uh, Columbia campus coming up in a few weeks. If you're new with us, my name's um, Josh. I'm a senior pastor here, and we're excited you're here. Um, that's a big deal in our church. And, uh, and so if I could help you, or if, if you could help me um, do something, I want to practice something that we'll be doing uh, starting in a couple weeks. So I'm going to do my part, and then you got to do your part. All right, so this is how this will work. In just five weeks, five weeks from this morning, I will uh, come up on stage, get ready to teach I will look right back there at our simulcast and I will say, Bridge family, help me welcome for the very first time our Columbia campus. And that's when you'll do your part like this. There you go. That's it. There you go. That's it. Awesome. Good job. Good job. Good job. Uh, Now, uh, let me uh, keep you guys uh, up to speed on what's going on. I mentioned for the last two weeks um, that we are launching that campus coming up. And uh, you guys know how when your family's pregnant, there's a little season of your family's life where it's like, it's all about the baby. You know, it's like you reverse engineer your budget from the baby. You reverse engineer your sleep schedule from the baby, whether you like it or not. Uh, you, re- you know, everything, it's all about the baby. Well, right now as a, uh, as a church, we're pregnant. We're getting ready to uh, launch and birth our first uh, church plant. And so um, for the last couple of weeks, I just mentioned in order for us to launch that campus, how we feel called to launch that campus. Um, we want to start with, we need 226 uh, bridge adults to commit to being a part of that campus launch team on ministry teams. Now, I'm really excited to announce that through two weeks, we already have 134 adults committed to ministry teams at that campus. What that means is that today, today, uh, we need 92 more adults to take that step. So if right now you're like, is he talking to me? What about me? I'm talking to you. We need you can, to consider taking that step, okay? So on the seat in front of you, you'll just see a little uh, Columbia Campus Commitment Card. Um, fill that guy out. Drop it in one of these gray boxes next to every door as you leave. And uh, let us know that you're going to do that. That would be, be amazing, okay? Now, uh, here's what's going on today. Um, today, as you're going to see in the next few minutes, it's a unique week in the life of our church, all right? So unique week. Let me start a little uniquely. Um, what we have noticed, what I've noticed is that uh, as a pastor, that there is uh, one of Satan's greatest strategies is to turn the united kingdom of God into a divided family feud. That is always what he wants to do all the time. And uh, I mentioned last week, I'm a third generation preacher, papa, dad, me. And because of that, um, I have seen churches that quickly devolve um, into becoming a family feud. Uh, here's what I learned growing up. Uh, with uh, my pastor and dad being around churches, is a pastor can sort of like, sometimes there'll be a little tension between uh, somebody in the church. There's one person in church that a senior pastor can never have beef with. Here's who it is, the choir director. Uh, That cannot happen. If that happens, like everything's over. Uh, So like my my papa, he used to tell me, it's an old preacher story uh, about a church where this happened. Pastor develops his beef with with, uh, the choir director. And so what happens is, one week, pastor gets up and, uh, and they have space issues. So he tells people that he needs them to move Sunday school classes. And on the spot, choir director turns the closing hymn of the service into the hymn, I shall not be moved. Okay. So then it's like, okay, this is a little awkward. So then the next week, pastor gets up and he preaches on giving. Man, we have to, faith- we need to faithfully give, you know, to the advancement of the kingdom. Uh, choir director gets up, makes the closing hymn, Jesus paid it all. It's like, all right, man. So it starts to, you know, he starts to realize that there's a little passive aggression and it dawns on him that there's some like gossip going on among the choir towards him as a senior pastor. So the next week he gets up and he preaches a sermon on taming the tongue, you know, gossip, controlling our speech. 
that week, the closing hymn is, I love to tell the story, okay? So then it's like, all right, man, see what's going on. That point, he starts getting um, a little, uh, a little uh, discouraged. So the next week, he gets up, and, uh, and he just says, man, it's so discouraging. I've actually considered resigning. Uh, and that week, they make the closing hymn, the, that old hymn, Oh, Why Not Tonight?, Okay. It's like, okay, great. Next week, finally, last straw, he gets up and he just lets him know that the Lord is leading him to a new ministry. He feels like Jesus has led him on to a new place. And closing him that week is what a friend we have in Jesus, right? So it's like, dude, just sort of escalates. Now, uh, here, here's what some of you guys know. If you have been around the church, um, what you know is that church people are amazing at allowing that to happen, turning what should be a united kingdom uh, into a divided family feud. There is one feud one feud that is, I feel like, increasingly common, the temperature of it is, is really rising. Um, and here's what I would say about this feud that I'm going I'm to mention. If you're a part of our church here at the bridge, you may find yourself sort of accidentally on one side of this little uh, unspoken feud. Um, if you are visiting our church, you may actually find yourself kind of with some tension on, on the other side of this feud. Uh, and it's a family feud that we all lose. Here's what it is. It's this tension that can exist between large churches and small churches. And no one ever says it out loud. No one would ever say it out loud. But there's this underlying tension uh, that people have where they can begin to think, man, uh, we don't, large church people can think, man, we don't want to be like one of those unsuccessful small churches that isn't reaching anybody, right? And then on the other hand, Uh, Small churches, uh, if you come from that background, you may have this tension inside of you where it's like, man, we don't want to be like one of those large sellout churches who will water down everything in order to reach people. And this tension sort of grows and it grows and it grows. Now, this is the misconception that I want to hit today is that this, this thing that people do, they begin to attach a moral value to church size. And it's an unspoken assumption that big is better than small or that small is more faithful than big, all right? Now, there's a reason. If you've been around the bridge for a while, which isn't a lot of you, there's a reason. This tension is very, very personal to me. And and the reason it's personal to me uh, is because we've been both. The bridge has been both. And in both seasons of our church's life, I felt this tension. So a lot of you guys don't know this, but just a few years ago, uh, the bridge was the very small church, Um, We were the church just a few years ago. Uh, It was five weeks after I got here. Total attendance that Sunday was 86 people, okay? Now, 86 people in Chapman's Retreat Elementary, that is including everyone. That's man, men, women, children, pets. That is everything. Uh, If there was a woman that was pregnant, I'd be like, hey, she's pregnant. That counts as two right there. We're pro-life, you know, whatever it is, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, and what, what began to happen is I would notice when we were a really small church, people would walk in and I would see it all over their faces. They would walk into the service and they'd look around and their face would kind of fall and they'd be like, ah, I really thought there'd be more people here, you know? Or people would begin uh, to sort of say some things uh, that were really sort of hard for me, uh, hard for me to hear. They would say things like, uh, man, we just, I can't, by the way, I cannot tell you how many times I heard this. They'd say things like, man, We just need a church with more ministries that has more going on that can minister to our entire family. You don't have enough for us here. 
Um, or people would walk in, and uh, one time I had a guy tell me, he said, man, we just, we just feel pulled to something more evangelistic. And I wanted, I wanted to say, man, I just feel pulled to chokeslam you, you know, that kind, of, <laughs> that kind of thing. And people would say that kind of stuff when they walk in, and they'd see that we were a small church. Uh, and, and, and that's the thing, is that there was, there was this unspoken assumption that if God was really at work in your church, that you would obviously be a much bigger church. And they had that mentality that, 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 that a big is better than small. Now, fast forward a few years. And, uh, and last week, we crammed about 2,300 people into this tiny little room. By the way, if you ever are uh, coming up trying to get a parking spot, may the odds be ever in your favor. You know, that kind of is like whatever. And, uh, and so now we're on the other end of the spectrum. And by the way, this is the part of the sermon where I vent anger to you. Uh, and, and vicious hurt that I, just comes out. So a little, little counseling session for me right now. Uh, but people, they'll walk in our church and, and they'll look around and they'll go, man, this is just not the church for us. We need a church that cares more about people, you know, and things like that. I'm like, dude, you've never even been to our church before. You don't know. Or people will come in and they'll, uh, I had a guy one time say, again, this is me venting to you. Uh, I had a guy one time that had been here like one time say, man, uh, churches like this, they're just personality cults revolving around the, everything's about the senior pastor. I kid you not, this is a true story. We reached back out to him and said, man, uh, actually we're led by a plurality of elders. Can one of our elders sit down with you to process this with you? This, is no, this was no joke, his response. No, I will only meet with a senior pastor to talk about this issue. You might see the irony. You see the irony there? So that kind of thing. Or every now and then I'll see somebody who's literally never even been to our church, uh, post, uh, you know, a post on Facebook. You know, again, this is my counseling session right here. They'll just be like, man, that church is growing really fast. They're, one of, they're probably just one of those churches that's just all about the numbers. Now, here's what I want to say to you. In both seasons of the church's life, I just wanted to defend that God was at work here. So when we were small, and people would say, man, we just need more ministries to minister to our whole family. I wanted to scream, guys, we only have 12 students in our student ministry, but five of them feel called to full-time ministry. Half of our student ministry wants to be used by God to lead the church of the future. God is at work here, even when there's 10 students and 86 people, right? And then now, whenever I see somebody that says, man, that church has grown really fast, uh, and, and they, they must just be all about the numbers, yeah, I'll be honest. Some of me wants to sort of just snap back and be like, you know what? We absolutely are somewhat all about some numbers. We're all about the number of lives saved from an eternity apart from God. We're all about the number of marriages restored. We're all about the number of orphans adopted. We're all about the number of depressed people finding hope out of hopelessness. Yeah, we are about some of those numbers, right? And so it's like, man, there is part of me that like, the, the, there's a flesh part of me that wants to like just throw down. Just, I just want to throw down that kind of thing. But what I, what I want you to see is that in both situations, here's what happens. There's some people that have this mentality that big is better than small. Or a mentality that small is more faithful than big. Now, here's a question, all right? That tension is there. Some of you guys may have that misconception. Here's what I want to ask you. Are you okay being okay with whatever kind of church you find in the Bible? Are you okay with that? All right. Now, I just want to point something out to you. You may have never noticed in the Bible before. Um, let, me, let me show you a few verses. Okay. So this is what I'm getting ready to read to you. These are two verses from the beginning of the book of Acts. If you're turning somewhere, don't turn to Acts. Turn to Hebrews 10. I'm going to get there in a second. Okay. Uh, these are two verses from the book of Acts. 
Now, what you're getting ready to read is a description of the first church that ever existed, all right? This is Acts chapter 2. This is what it says. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The first church that ever existed was significantly larger than we are now. There were 3,000 people gathering in a temple and then meeting together in homes to encourage each other towards Christ. Now, just two chapters later, watch what happens. This is Acts 4. Just two chapters later, we read, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about, look, 5,000. So this church, the first church that ever existed is a 5,000-person church meeting in the temple for worship, breaking bread together in homes. Now, if those were the only verses you read about the church, what you might be tempted to think at this point is you may go, well, there it is, Josh. If God is really at work among the church, then it will be large, okay? But there's something you probably never noticed when you've read your New Testament epistles before. If you read those letters At the end of the letters in the New Testament, there's little verses like this you may never have noticed. So this, here's what this is. This is at the end of the book of Romans, and this is what Paul says. He says, greet Prissa and Aquila. Greet also the church, look at this, in their house. Now think about this. What Paul's saying is, I'm writing this, the most significant New Testament letter, and he wrote it to a church that was small enough to fit in a New Testament living room. Do you see that? Okay, I'll give you another one. This is the end of the book of Colossians. Paul says, give my greetings to Nympha. If you're pregnant and looking for baby names, Nympha is available. Okay, so (laughs) greetings to Nympha and the church in her house. And there it is again. So now what we have is we've got these churches that are small enough to fit in living rooms. And listen, God was at work in the 5,000 person church in Jerusalem. And he was at work in the living room church in Rome and the couch sized church in Colossae. And what you see when you read the New Testament is, listen, what you see is that it doesn't matter how God moves. It just matters that God moves. And God is always at work in the church, big or small. God's line isn't big or small. It's faithful or unfaithful. And listen, guys, there are large unfaithful churches and large faithful churches. And there are small unfaithful churches and there are small faithful churches, mighty mouses that are doing damage for the kingdom all over the world. And our question isn't to judge how he moves, it's to celebrate that he moves. Now, I want you to see this in, in church history. I want to give an example. This is maybe bring this a little closer to us. Two years ago, I took a summer and all I did that summer was read about the revival movements throughout church history. And one of my favorite stories is that there is, at the same time, there were two revivals taking place uh, among the nations that were two of the largest revivals that have ever happened in all of church history. Here's what I love about these revivals, okay? Now, here's the first one. They were happening in South Korea and in China. Now, think about this, all right? In the year 1900, 1% 1 of South Koreans professed to be Christians, Uh, But in the year 1900, something began to happen. It it happened in a city called Pyongyang. And in Pyongyang, there was a a British missionary who strode into town, and he began to preach Jesus. And there was gathered in Pyongyang in the year 1900 about 100 South Koreans. And the Holy Spirit began to fall on this man's preaching. And God began to convict them as he preached the gospel of grace and repentance unto life. Um, The Holy Spirit fell and began to convict those 100 South Koreans that were gathered of their racial hatred 
of the Japanese people right across the border. And they began to be cut to the heart and convicted for their sin. And according to eyewitnesses, uh, men and women began to stand and publicly confess their sin and their hatred of Japanese people right across the border for hours and hours on end. And they would weep and they would cry out for the forgiveness of God. And this one prayer meeting, according to eyewitnesses, lasted for days, up to five days. People stood and confessed their sin and there was mass conversion. And a gospel explosion came out of that 100-person prayer meeting that for the last 100 years has swept through the nation of South Korea. In fact, today, uh, today around 30% of South Koreans profess to be Christians. What that means is that in 100 years, 15 million people have been swept up into Christ in South Korea. 100 years, 15 million. All right, now, here's my point. Um, a lot of people, when they think about really big churches... They think, oh man, that's an American thing. That doesn't have, actually, uh, the largest churches in the world are not in America. They're in South Korea. I mean, the capital of South Korea right now, there are 17 churches that are 3,000 people or larger in one city, including the largest church in the world. It's called Yoido Full Gospel Church, which has, drumroll, 800,000 members in one church. Okay? Now, that is in South Korea. Here's what I love about this story, all right? Now, just across the border to the south in China, at the exact same time that a revival was taking place in South Korea, a revival began to birth itself in China. In the year 1949, there were one million, only one million professing Christians in the entire nation of China. But the same thing began to happen as the gospel began to explode on Chinese people's hearts and it began to sweep through the nation, such that today, uh, today there, is an, there are an estimated 58 million Chinese Christians that are gathering uh, in churches today on pace for there to be 160 million Chinese Christians by the year 2025. It is literally the fastest growing spread of the gospel in all of church history. To put that in perspective, by the year 2025, there will be more Chinese Christians than American Christians. Praise Jesus for his work. That is happening across. Now, here's what's so interesting about this, all right? The churches in China look totally different than the churches in South Korea. China is a, an officially atheistic country. It is illegal to gather in a way that the government deems subversive to their authority as a church, right? Uh, in fact, if you were paying attention to the New York Times this week, there was a huge story in the New York Times about the Chinese government demolishing the building of the largest Chinese church uh, in an area. So the Chinese churches don't look anything like the South Korean churches. Here's where they meet, in living rooms. Two-thirds of Chinese Christians, so two-thirds of 58 million people, attend a house church. I love thinking about this. So think about this. The odds... Here are the odds. The odds are not that the next Billy Graham is in a North American youth ministry somewhere. The odds are that the next Billy Graham is sitting in a Chinese living room worshiping this morning. Those are the odds, all right? Now, I want you to think about this. So we, we know those stories. Think about this with me for a second. Let me show you two pictures. So here's what you have. On the left, you've got, if you can see it, you've got a picture of one of the 10 services that takes place on Sunday at Yoido Full Gospel Church in Seoul, South Korea. 
They're in one day, they run services seven days a week so they can fit that many Christians into one building. But in one day, around 100,000 South Koreans will gather in this worship space, just a sea of people. Now, if you look over here to the right, it looks extremely different. In fact, you can't make, make much out of that picture. Here's why. Because the faces are blurred. You know why the faces are blurred in this picture? There's 32 people in it. 32 faces are blurred here. Do you know why? Because these people know that it's illegal for them to be gathering in a Chinese living room. And so their faces are blurred lest they incur uh, some unwanted attention from the Chinese government. So let me ask you this question. This worship service is way bigger than this worship service. But which one is better? Neither. Because it doesn't matter how God moves. What matters is that God moves. God has used the megachurch to reach South Korea. He has used the house church to reach China. And he's moving. And he's in all of them. Listen, guys. God's line isn't, when we stand before God, he will not ask ask us the question, how big did you get or how small did you stay? He will ask us the question, were you faithful to make Jesus famous everywhere you went? That's the question he'll ask. So, Bridge Church, I need you to hear this from me. Our goal isn't to be a big church. Our goal is to make a big difference for the fame of Christ in as many people's lives as possible. That's our goal. All right, now, here's what I know. So let me diffuse that tension. Here's what I know. What I know is that that's what's not true. Here's what is true. What's true is that the larger our church gets, the smaller the Bible calls your community to be. That's what I know. Larger the church gets, the smaller God calls your community to be. Now, here's what I mean by this. I told you earlier to turn to Hebrews 10. Okay, let me read you a verse. It's kind of familiar, but it's familiar, but unfamiliar from Hebrews 10. So check this out. These are three verses in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Here's what it says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, now. Uh, I told you earlier, I'm a third generation preacher. And so here's what I've seen over and over. I've seen pastors, they read this verse and they go, here's what this verse means. Go to church. This verse means go to church. Now it does mean that, but it means so much more than that. All right. Let me give you an example of this. So think about this right now. You're in church. We are gathered as the church right now, but let me ask you this question. Are you right now? Think about what's on the screen. Are you right now stirring up one another to love and good works while I'm preaching. Okay? Now, I mean, in some small ways, like, man, if you sing with your voice, one reason we sing out loud is so that people can borrow faith from us. Or if you worship expressively with your body like the Bible commands us to, then yes, there's some small ways that we are stirring one another up to love and good works. But in general, that's not happening right now. You're not right now stirring one another up to love and good works. Here's what this verse means. What the the Bible teaches, there's an assumption. The Bible assumes if you want to go deeper, if you want to get closer and closer to God, then you have to go deeper and deeper with the people of God. That there is, the Bible calls us to gather in such a way that we know what's going on with each other's souls and we can strategically encourage one another to follow hard after Christ. So let me ask you a diagnostic question right now. Maybe a little uncomfortable. Do you have people in your life who know your soul well enough and have permission enough that they are strategically thinking, how can I get him to chase harder after Christ? How can I get her to love Jesus and accept Jesus' love for her more deeply? 
Do you have those people in your life, okay? Now, I, I want to show you the power of this. Um, I, I try to, let me preface this, okay? Uh, I try to be extremely, extremely open about all of my faults and all my junk. I am a really jacked up guy. If you don't know that, just let's spend some time together and I'll prove it to you in person. It's gonna, it'll be awesome, all right? So all of you know that. I am just a guy in need of grace just like you. But it was interesting to me in preparing for this sermon and meditating on this passage, um, God saved me when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, It is interesting to me that since I've been a sophomore in high school, I have never had a season of my life uh, where I walked away from the Lord. Uh, And I've never even had a short season in my life where I just stopped caring. Uh, You know, it's pretty rare, right, to hold fast the confession of faith like that um, since then. And this week I just asked, I was kind of going, why is that? I go, oh, why, why have, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Why is that? Uh, let me show you why, and let me show you why with three pictures, okay? Um, first of all, so here's, here's who this is. This is an amazing picture. What this is, that, that's, a, that's a 16-year-old Josh Howerton on the left. Amazing, right? That's a 119-pound Josh Howerton. That's who that is. And then this guy, is, his name is Jeff Carlisle. That was my youth minister. By the way, uh, Jeff Carlisle, here's what happened. When God saved me, Jeff Carlisle was my youth pastor. And Jeff, immediately when God saved me, he said, Josh, let's do this. Every Tuesday, why don't you come into my office from school and let's meet together. And I want to teach you how to read the Bible. Uh, And I want to teach you how to follow after Christ. And uh, do I speak into your life? By the way, Jeff Carlisle was the first person to ever ask me to preach. He said, man, I see this in you. I would not be preaching today if it wasn't for Jeff Carlisle. Um, little side note, Jeff Carlisle is also the guy who set me up on a blind date with a woman that eventually became my wife. Uh, so he's a gift that keeps on giving. That's who Jeff, he just keeps going, man. So that's Jeff Carlisle. And we did that. We met together every Tuesday for three years, sophomore, junior, and senior year. And he taught me um, how to follow after Jesus. Now, then I graduated from high school and I went to Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. And uh, an amazing coincidence happened, coincidence, my, uh, my freshman year. I got in a dorm room with four other guys who loved Jesus and were like normal dudes, you know. And, uh, and so uh, we met together, and here's who these guys are. This is a picture of me with these guys. This is uh, Seth, Greg, Josh Hedrick, and then John Reed is holding the camera. And what we did is we decided, hey, um, every Monday night, uh, let's meet at 7 p.m. after all the intramural games are over. Nothing can interfere with intramurals in college, right? And so we were like, at 7 p.m., and we called it the war room. And we met in the war room every Monday, 7 p.m., to wage war against our flesh. Um, and we read the Bible together. Um, and we called out the best in each other. And we called down the worst in each other. And we confessed all of our junk with each other for four years, 7 p.m., every Monday. I'm lifelong friends with these guys. In fact, I messaged two of these guys this week, totally unrelated reasons to this sermon. I mean, I walked with those guys for four years. And then, so that's who these guys are, right? And then I graduated from Union University and, uh, and I became a camp counselor at Crossings Christian Camps. And the first time I was ever a camp counselor, I was a Bible study leader. And a little kid, he was a little kid back then, little kid walked into my Bible study and he was very confident and he oozed this amazing charisma. And uh, I remember the first question I asked, I asked everybody in the room, what do you want to do? Uh, with your Christian leadership someday. And this kid's answer was, I'm going to be the president of the United States by the time I'm 44. That's what he said. And that kid was Matt Swoboda. 
Matthew J. Swoboda, that guy right there. Some of you know him as Pastor Matt. Uh, by the way, this is Matt and Meredith, his wife Meredith, on their first date. Give it up for the Swobodas. Swoboda, that's right. We love the Swobodas. And, uh, and so here's what happened. The Lord knit our souls together. And so I walked out of that Bible study, and, uh, and we started, first it was emailing each other. And we would just email each other, man, here's what the Lord's doing in my life. Here's what I'm trying to understand about the Bible. Here's what I am struggling with and can't seem to overcome. And then in God's providence, Matt moved to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where I was in seminary. And then uh, our family started getting together, Matt and Meredith and me and Jana. Uh, and we would meet and we would laugh together and we'd cry together and we'd talk about what the Lord was doing in our lives. Matt and I would share these dreams about what we felt like God was putting in our hearts to accomplish for his kingdom. And we just kept meeting together. And then one day, in God's providence, uh, God called Matt to become a pastor at the Bridge Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee, seven years ago. And to this day, Matt and I meet together. So Monday morning, 6.30 a.m., Cracker Barrel. And we meet and we share all the stuff that's going on in our lives. And we spur each other on towards Jesus. And that still happens to this day. Now, let me ask you this question. In 18 years, why have I never wavered from holding fast to my confession of faith? Do you know why? It's not because of a book I read or because of a discipline that I developed. It's because I've never neglected to meet together as son, <clears throat> as some are in the habit of doing. And if you, listen, if you ever become the person that God has called you to be, that he's destined you to be by the power of his Holy Spirit, it's not gonna be because you read a book. It's not gonna be because you got a job. It's gonna be because you cultivated a relationship. That's why, okay? Now listen, here's the assumption of the Bible. If you wanna get closer and closer with God, you gotta go deeper and deeper with the people of God. There is no other way. All right, now listen, I want you to see the power of this in somebody's life, okay? So I want you to see this with your own two eyes. So give your attention to the screen and see the story really quick. We ended up moving down here kind of end of 2014, a month or two after Abel was born. We expected a very healthy baby boy. I mean, he was eight pounds, one ounce. It wasn't until later that we found out something was terribly wrong with him. Probably right around the 10 month mark, Abel had gotten so bad that he needed a feeding tube um, placed through his nose and into his belly in order to get proper nutrition. We had gotten the diagnosis the next morning, which is a very ultra rare genetic disorder um, called cystinosis. It's a metabolic disorder that it affects every single cell in the entire body causing destruction to all major organs. A team of um, hospitalists, uh, social workers, everybody were crowded the room when they finally gave us that diagnosis. And I remember um, looking at my husband and him just straight face, not knowing what to do. And then I just placed my hands in my face and I sobbed. When Abel was 18 months, uh, we gave birth to Paul, our second and we were able to test the cord blood uh, at birth to find out as quick as possible because there was a 25% chance that he would uh, also have the cystinosis. I got the phone call um, from the geneticist. I knew from the tone of her voice that it was positive, that he had this terminal diagnosis. I 
had thought that God had punished me. It was my first time back at the bridge, and I had gone into the nursing room, and I met this wonderful lady named Nicole. You know, I remember telling myself that I was not going to talk about cystinosis, um, because at that time, cystinosis became and engulfed my world. I ended up spewing my whole story and everything that was happening at that current moment to her. Um, but she just sat there and she, she listened and she supported me and my emotions at that time. And that night she invited us to this community group. When we showed up at the Wheelers, I had yet again told myself, I'm not going to talk about cystinosis, but with introduction to the Wheeler family, it was something along the lines like this. Hi, my name's Anna, and this is Paul, and my kids have cystinosis, it's a terminal disease. The response from the group to us were just open arms. I mean, they really cared for us. Um, God put them in our lives for a reason. Family supports you through thick and thin, and that is which every single member in our group has done for us. Um, not only do we pray, but you know, just to, to know that they're right down the street or they're just a phone call away um, really means a lot to us. And to have people that are so generous with their time and caring and, and genuinely interested in you and your well-being and your spirituality and your relationship with Jesus, I don't know that I've had friends like that in my whole life. The community group and us have been praying for about two years now uh, for the cure for cystinosis for both the boys. Uh, this past October, after a genetic test run on both boys, we had received a piece of mail stating that both boys have this specific mutation that could be cured. Currently it's in FDA regulations, but really technically all we're waiting for is a phone call. God has this path for us and He is the one that paves the way. And For each brick, He's not ready to show you the path, but you know that he holds the bricks. We want to know all the answers to, to everything. And I feel like God has really kind of worked in our hearts is, you know, he is in control. He has the ability to cure and he has the ability to heal. Without this, you know, knowing, I don't know that we would have pressed into God as much as we have today, but we, have, that we would have connected with people that we've connected with, that we would have had this relationship with Jesus that we have today. And then looking forward to being, how can we be blessings to others in the way that you know, we have been blessed even through this tragedy. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing right there. Now listen. Yeah, man. Yeah. Listen. Listen. Some of you are at a spot in your life where the Holy Spirit is breaking your heart. And maybe for the first time in your life, you are crying out to God, God, I, I need a new heart, you know, or God, I, I need a new marriage or God, I need a new life. Listen, you are not one book away from those things and you're not one job away from those things. You're not one move away from those things. You are one community away from those things. That's what it is. All right. So here's what we're doing today. Um, we believe in this so deeply that today what we're doing is in one day we are launching about 50 new community groups, okay? So um, do this for me. As you guys came in, you got handed one of these dudes. Go ahead and grab this guy. Go ahead and grab it, grab it, grab it. Um, go ahead and grab it. Just boost my self-esteem. Do it. Look, just look like you're listening to me. That'd be awesome. 
And here's what's happening. Um, Today, again, we're launching 50 new community groups to give you a chance, to give every man, woman, and child a chance to step into a place where they can encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching, have our lives changed through the body of Christ by Christ, all right? So what you have here, as you open this up, you're gonna notice we've got Spring Hill groups and then Columbia campus groups. And we've got, listen, we've got groups that meet as far north as north of Franklin and as far south as Kolioka. There are groups that meet every day of the week. There are groups that meet at 6 a.m. There are groups that start at 7 p.m. There, you name it, there are groups led by 27-year-olds and groups led by 77-year-olds. But what we're doing right now is we simply want to see every single person in our church have the chance to have their lives changed like I've had mine changed by the community of Christ, all right? So if you could do this, everybody go ahead and stand up. Go ahead and do it for me right now. Go ahead and stand up. This worship service is over. And here's what I'm asking you to do. As you open this, you're going to see every group that's launching today. And you'll see a picture of the person that's leading the group, where and when the group meets, and then a description about it, if childcare is provided. We have all kinds of different groups, men's groups, women's groups, open groups, financial freedom groups for people who need help. We have freedom groups for people who need freedom from bondage. They are everywhere there. Here's what I'm asking. These groups are going to meet for the next 13 weeks. I'm not even asking for that. Here's what I am asking for. I am, as your pastor, I'm asking you to just test drive a group for the next six weeks. If you hate those people and they're really weird, you have your pastor's permission to leave the group in six weeks. You have it. You heard it from me. But I'm asking you to take that chance And to test drive a group for the next six weeks, and here's what I found in nine years of pastoring this church, you will not regret it. In fact, it will probably be the second most spiritually significant decision you ever make besides giving your life to Christ. So I'm asking you to do that. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you right out these back doors, and these group leaders, you can go out there, you can meet them. we got like 15 iPads out there. we got people to help you through that process. Keep your kids in kids' ministry for the next 10, 15 minutes. We're prepared for that. You can head right out these doors and meet that group leader and sign up to test drive a group for the next six weeks. That's what I'm asking, all right? Now, right now, you are officially dismissed. Head right out these back doors, meet them, do it from me, love you, go, 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 go. Do it right now, right now, right now, right now.